Hello, loyal listening audience. My name is Jake Wiskirchen, and I'm the podcast host of Noggin Notes, which is the show you're about to listen to. And today's show is an episode wherein I interview a psychiatrist named Dr. Michael McGee. He's from California on the on the coast, actually, uh, the central coast, if you're familiar with California. It's gorgeous there. Highway run, 1 uh, runs up and down the, the coast of California and um, right through where he works. You can check out his websites, if you'd like, at wellmind.com and drmichaelmcgee.com. That's drmichaelmcgee.com. And find out more. I think you're going to find this interesting. He deals primarily with addiction, but also runs the gamut with a, with a number of things. He's written a couple of books and papers. He's working on a, a book right now. And I think the interview is fantastic. It was a real treat to talk to this uh, absolute gem of a human being. And uh, I'm not going to say any more. I'm just going to let the interview speak for itself. He's amazing. The show is brought to you by Audible. If you're not familiar with Audible, Audible gives you audiobooks. It's powered by Amazon. And Audible is offering our listeners of Noggin Notes a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. So if you go to audibletrial.com slash Noggin Notes, you can... Uh, sign up, and then you can also browse the completely unmatched selection of audio programs. Uh, download any one of those that you see for free and start listening. It's it's really just that easy. Just just go to audibletrial.com slash notes and uh, get started. And in the process, you'll be given back to the show as well. I've mentioned before that it's it's not cheap to, to host a podcast, and uh, we're proud to be able to do it for free. Uh, so if you want to, you know, knock out some audio listening while also supporting Noggin Notes, go to audibletrial.com slash Noggin Notes, sign up for your 30-day trial membership, and download a free audiobook while you're at it. And just once more for good measure, audibletrial.com slash Noggin Notes. We're also brought to you by Zephyr Wellness, which is a company that I co-own in Reno, Nevada with my co-owner, Lindsay Bell. And if you want to contribute to the show uh, through Zephyr Wellness, you can go to the Zephyr Wellness Venmo account uh, right there from your phone and just uh, flip us a few bucks and we'll uh, we'll make sure it makes it in the Noggin Notes uh, produce, production people's hands so that they can pay some bills. Uh, any amount would be great, 5 bucks, 15 bucks, whatever. Uh, just put in the memo line, Noggin Notes. Uh, so you go to Zephyr Wellness, it's all squished together, no underscores, no dashes. I think I, last time I mentioned there was a dash. It's not Zephyr-Wellness, it's just Zephyr Wellness on Venmo. You can do it right there from your phone, and um, you know that you'll be supporting this program ongoing. And if you're not so moved as to donate, that's fine, just keep listening. Uh, we're going to keep producing content as long as you keep listening. And I think I've said enough about that. Nobody likes to hear me talk about raising funds anyway. So without further delay, here is uh, Dr. Michael McGee and my interview with him on the Noggin Notes podcast. Enjoy. Hey, so we're talking with Dr. Michael McGee. He is uh, He's the first psychiatrist we've had on the show. Welcome, Dr. McGee. How are you? Uh, good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for for filling our content. We appreciate it, and um, it takes the burden off me from having to invent something in my head to to ramble about into the microphone without uh, an interviewee. So <laughs> you're doing me a favor, but I think the audience likes it. And I, I want to obviously we'll get into what you do and and how it differentiates from maybe traditional you know talk psychotherapy what the what the medical side is and all that. But, but you also are the author of a uh, fairly popular book. And uh, I want to I want to talk to you about that too, um, but first I want to get into what it is that you do for a 
for work? Like, how does you, how's your work life scheduled? Cause you have like, I don't know, several hats that you wear and you've got a couple of different jobs. And so I'll just stop talking and let you explain yourself and how your life looks to the listener. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Well, it's great to be here. Uh, I'm a board certified general adult psychiatrist and a board certified addiction psychiatrist. So uh, I spend my time about half uh, treating sort of general psychiatric issues and about half my time, um, treating uh, addictions issues, and, and then another half of my time uh, doing uh, administrative work. I'm the chief medical officer at The Haven, which is a addictions treatment facility located on the Central Coast in California. Uh, so um, I do that uh, part-time, four days a week, and then I have my private practice um, about 20 hours a week. Uh, and then I work one day a week in, in a prison hospital, uh, a state hospital for for mentally ill prisoners uh, called the Tascadero State Hospital. And on that one day a week, I, I teach a substance abuse and advanced recovery course uh, on recovery is the practice of love um, uh, to the prisoner or patients there. Um, so I do that and then, and then provide psychiatric care there. So I'm pretty busy between those three jobs. Yeah, that's a lot of variety in one's life. Um... I want to ask you about the prison. I want to ask you about some other stuff, but talk a little bit about The Joy of Recovery, which is a book that you wrote. Uh, The subtitle is A Guide to Healing from Addiction. Um, And to tease the audience a little bit, you you don't just do medical interventions. Uh, I think a lot of times we think of psychiatrists uh, in today's world as being med managers. Uh, They they moderate your medication and give you advice uh, advice and guidance on what um, what psychotropic drugs to take and that sort of thing, uh, but the psychiatrists of yesteryear were very um, they were very clinically oriented in a in a, a therapy capacity. They would do you know talk therapy and counseling, and and you hybridize those, and then you weave in some spirituality too, and um, and that's that's really the thrust of your your philosophy, as I understand it. So talk talk about the book, the the joy of recovery. Sure. Okay, so The Joy of Recovery is a book that was about 30 years in the writing. Um, I, I collected over about 30 years of work uh, a number of principles of what I found work for recovery um, and came up with a list of about 60 principles. And as I looked at that list of, of what what makes up a joyful recovery, I was able to distill them down into 12 touchstones of recovery. And uh, those touchstones are our core principles or bedrocks of a, of a joyful life of recovery. And they include things like working on your recovery every day and getting yourself into a positive recovery environment, um, uh, renouncing all addicting, uh, really not harming yourself by way of any, any sort of addictions, uh, living a life of integrity, uh, living a life of love, uh, cultivating your spirituality, uh, practicing accountability in your life, um, persevering, uh, really dedicating yourself to a, a pro- lifetime process of continuous growth, uh, developing healthy relationships, uh, respecting reality. Um, so the, these are some of the, uh, the core principles of recovery. And so the book is, is divided into 12 major chapters uh, talking about each one of these touchdowns. And it includes uh, tips uh, along the way and, and then uh, practice task exercises uh, that, that people can do to enhance their recovery skills. 
That's amazing to me listening to you because uh, we have a we have an international audience. Um, uh, my my partner with Naga Notes, he's in Cambodia. He's originally from South Africa. One of the original partners was from the UK, and and I've done some interviews from different countries. And we also have a broad audience uh, demographically of ages, and also some a lot of clinicians listen, as well as uh, just random you know lay people in the audience who are just curious about the process of psychology and therapy and emotional functioning and, and health overall. And I think to the to the clinical audience and maybe even to, to people who are just generally listening because they're curious, to hear you say, I over my 30 years, I have distilled into 12 principles some, some basic things that I've learned. I think it, it takes me aback because I've, I've only been at my profession for about 10 years now in, in mental health and about seven of those licensed. Um, and, and I think for those of us who are still going through this growth process, we, we think, you know, we, we should have, you know, putting air quotes around should, we should have something by which we operate, right? Those are the, um, the, the, the fundamental principles or what have you. And it took you 30 years <laughs> to, to get something, uh, really, uh, linear and distilled and, and, you know, printable in a, in a book. And I think that's really fabulous, uh, that you spent that much time, working on something and working in a in a certain direction but also that you had the insight to go back and reflect on it and say there's got to be some commonalities here um if you could take me through the process because it's encouraging and it's and it's it's motivating me to say well, okay I, I don't have to have it all figured out at this early age of my career and neither does anybody else and there's more to, to to learn along the way i don't have to write the book tomorrow you know i can i can take 30 years and write the book but take us through the process of how you how you evaluated that and how you came to those to those 12 principles because i think i think that's fascinating i think it's a neat journey yeah oh, well first of all uh, jake i want to thank you for your kindness you're 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 a very kind and generous person and i i, I really appreciate that you know i you know what i did was i, I just sort of kept a list um of, of principles as they came up um and and just accumulated that over over several years, and it was just a process of ruminating on them and, and mulling them over. And if you'd like, I can I can go through. Well, it depends. I don't I don't know how you'd like to direct our conversation, but if you'd like, I can I can go through the twelve touchstones and give give uh, our audience um, an overview uh, of the highlights and, and the central components of, of a of a joyful life of recovery, if you'd like. Yeah, I think that'd be useful because as people listen to this, what I want them to take away is something practical that they can apply their life. I don't want you to give the book away, obviously. I mean, you, you spent life's lifetime, you know, building it. We don't need to give it away for free. But, um, but yeah, to to maybe um, center on those, you know, how you came about the the principles, and um, and maybe the process by which you you discarded some things. Like, what didn't you hang on to? Oh, that's a good question. You know, this was so many years ago. Um, I think that um, I, I, you know, I can't answer that. I can't think of something that I said. This is this is the principle, but I'm going to discard this. Um, I can't think of that. I, and I really think the process of synthesizing this was just sort of looking looking at uh, all these principles over and over and over and over again, and just it, it was like it came to me. I, I, it's a mysterious thing, but it just sort of these 12 touchstones just sort of emerge um, as I looked at this. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of that process was actually, you know, I, I've been treating people for 20, uh, some of my patients have been with me for over 20 years, and I've seen them through the ups and downs of their recoveries and have seen them you know, um, 
grow. I just had somebody today who I've been working with for about 15 years who recently re-addicted on heroin. And uh, he's thankfully, he's back on track today. But uh, you know, awesome. in talking about that with him and, and diagnosing the anatomy of, of this episode of re-addiction, you know, learning, for example, that, that living a life of balance, um, uh, which he, he got into working seven days a week uh, again, which is his, his vulnerability to a work addiction, um, and, 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 and got away from his, talking to his sponsor and got away from going to meetings and got himself completely stressed out and overwhelmed um, uh, and then ran into um, uh, somebody on the street and just got triggered. And this was after, oh, my gosh, 12, 13 years of solid recovery. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, that, one, that one episode of re-addiction has so much to teach. It teaches us the principle of, of you know, uh, really living a life of balance and managing stress well, which is the, the fifth touchstone, which is to heal. And it, ta- and it really addresses the, the, the first touchstone, which is to work on your recovery every day, which he had gotten away from. And, and it really uh, addresses the um, developing healthy relationships uh, touchstone because he had um, – allowed himself to reconnect with people who were using drugs who then who, who were then part of his environment and triggered him to re-addict. So it's just funny how over and over again, um, as I treat people every day, uh, these touchstones just keep re-emerging over and over again as the core principles of recovery. In your practice, uh, you... Um... I like I like how you said that. By the way, they they just kind of presented to you as almost like it was um, like revealed, if you if you will. Exactly. And, uh, these these things keep keep coming up, and it's not through coincidence. Uh, the more you practice, the more you see common threads and themes, and uh, certainly systemic relationships and and so forth. But uh, as I gather, you, you primarily deal with uh, substance abuse addiction. But talk about if you've if you've applied the same principles to process addictions or so-called process addictions, which is the, the non-chemical stuff like um, gambling and video games and um, you know pornography yeah. and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The principles are the same. Um, there are some subtle differences. And I talk in my book about, about recovery from, from process addictions as well. For example, it's really difficult to, if you have a food addiction, it's very difficult to be, have a vital recovery if you're not eating. Um, that's just really tough. Yeah. Well, um, you know, you're, you're sitting there too busy dying because your body needs new nutrition. <laughs> so, so, you know, and, and, and things like sex can be very tricky as well and work addiction. Um, and technology addiction, I think the first oh. and, and probably the most prevalent addiction we have right now is a technology addiction, followed by food addiction. And we are a, a country that is in an epidemic of, of, of addiction. And, and substance abuse is, is, is not even the most common of our addictions. So, Jake, you're really making a good point that, um, that, that process addictions are so critical. And really, the, the underlying principles are by and large the same. I think what's really difficult with process addictions like sex and food and technology is that we still have to engage in in these activities, but we have to find a way to do them in a way that doesn't over-trigger our drive-reward system. And oh, yeah. This kind of behavioral dysregulation that leads to compulsion and loss of control uh, and, and the process of addiction. And so there's that extra dimension for process addictions. I treat a lot of food addiction in my practice. Um, I probably have to say that's, that's a good maybe quarter of, of what I do. And so 
Um, Just like the principles are all the same, though, there are some variations, some differences for each addiction in terms of how you approach them. All right. The food addictions that you're saying, we did, this is relevant because it's coming off a two-part episode where I interviewed a, a dietitian with a local community health organization here in Reno. And I'm, I'm wondering, are the food addictions you're dealing with, are, are they obese uh, people, people struggling with obesity, or is, or is it people who are food avoidant based on like body dysmorphia stuff or both? Sure. Um, mostly what I treat is, is, is morbid obesity. Um, I also have patients who have binge eating disorder, uh, where for example, they, they truly have, uh, I mean, I mean, sugar, sugar can be as an addictive, a chemical as heroin and cocaine for some people. How is that? Hold on. Explain that. Cause that sounds uh, a little paradoxical and bizarre to probably the most listening audience. Yeah. Uh, Well, you know, we, we didn't evolve over the past several million years to eat extremely high concentrated amounts of sucrose, um, and True. when the brain gets hit, when the drive reward system gets hit by the pleasure of concentrated sweets in the form of sugar, for some people, the, the, the experience of pleasure leads to such a strong compulsive drive for more uh, that people who have who are vulnerable to the binge eating disorder uh, can, can be really triggered into out of control consumption of sugar, even with just one or two bites of sugar so that they really have to avoid sugar. And I find the same thing in general for carbohydrates for many people, that carbohydrates cause cravings. And and, and for some people, they're just too addictive, and they need to, to, to modify their diet to a, a low-carbohydrate diet in order to deal with the kind of intense cravings that they get when they eat carbohydrates. This is sounding like a like a, just a neurological foregone conclusion that some people, by a roll of the cosmic dice or whatever, have a brain that is overly stimulated by uh, you know Skittles as opposed to uh, people who aren't overly stimulated by Skittles. And, and I'm yeah. wondering if it's really that random or or can can there some well, be know, some level of awareness there? Yeah, pe- people try and distill uh, the, the etiology of addiction down into one or two or three uh, contributing variables, and you just can't do that with addiction. But that being said, uh, there is about a 40 to 70 percent um, genetic contribution to addiction, uh, depending on the substance. So uh, I don't know the, the research or the literature on food per se or, or carbohydrates or sugar. But for example, for hallucinogens, there's about a 40% genetic contribution to addiction, which is really quite rare with hallucinogens. Uh, and then that goes up to as high as, as um, a 70% genetic contribution to addiction for cocaine, methamphetamine. So when you talk uh, about, uh, sorry. So, so there is a, a large genetic contribution, but, but that only confers a vulnerability. Um, there's many other factors that contribute to addiction, including uh, psychiatric illness, um, uh, trauma. Um, uh, I, I think some sort of dis- disconnection, social disconnection, a lack of purpose and meaning and belonging, and, and spiritual pain. All of those can contribute to uh, addiction in, in, contra- in combination with the genetic vulnerability. I have uh, said repeatedly on this podcast and in various formats, uh, somewhat to uh, to the chagrin of my your colleagues that um, our mental illnesses are not genetic in so far as most people understand them. 
that, you know, your eye color is genetic and I can't, you know, perform some talk therapy to make you change from blue to green. Uh, and so I've encouraged people to move away from that kind of language because it's very handcuffing and it's very self-limiting to say, well, it's genetic and there's nothing I can do about it. All I can do is manage the rest of my life. Um, but I'm hearing this genetic contribution uh, literature and research, and I'm wondering how much of that is something where a um, a person can hear, because I, I like having my mind changed too, this is why I'm bringing it up, uh, where a person can say, yep, there's there's not much I can do about it except to resign myself to being aware of the the triggers and the and the intakes that I have in order to avoid this addictive pattern versus saying no i this is overcomable and it's and it's something i can i can definitely modify through you know new patterns of behavior uh you know neuroplasticity changing my brain uh pathways and that kind of thing so i'm I'm curious to know what you know about that and what your philosophy is behind it sure absolutely well i think everybody varies in terms of the degree of their genetic vulnerability Uh, for example there's some people with alcohol use disorder that they can be leading perfectly happy lives of love integration but if they have one drink, they're just gone. Um, there's just that that one drink le- it compulsively leads to the next drink, which mm-hmm. leads to ten thousand drinks. And and even if they're living a complete life of love and integrity and integration and connection and spiritual wholeness and fulfillment, if they have that one drink, uh, they can comp- their their dry reward system can really be uh, triggered into uh, an overwhelming. Uh, process. Um, that being said, um, those are probably the exceptions. Uh, there are people who, through a process of healing of other factors, like like um, healing psychiatric illnesses and um, and developing a life of meaning and fulfillment and connection and wholeness, uh, that that then can reduce uh, the drive to use addiction as a pain management solution uh, and can reduce the drive to sort of numb pain with pleasure, which is kind of at the root of, of addiction. And if they do those things, then, then maybe then um, they, they then, then exposure to that chemical neurobiologically uh, isn't going to uh, trigger them. Uh, but, but there are, so, so there's really a spectrum and there isn't sort of one rule for everybody, mm-hmm. but, but if you do have a neurobiological vulnerability that if you get exposed to the stimulus, and you you find that there's a complete dysregulation of your drive reward system, then then you know that genetically that's something that you just need to stay away from probably for the rest of your life. Right. There is research on harm reduction uh, approaches, and that research is kind of limited in terms of the efficacy of it. There are people who can learn to to drink and drug. Um, uh, and reduce the harm around that. But if you look at that literature, as, as I as I've read the literature, as I understand it, most people, when they engage, for example, in trying to drink in a controlled way, will eventually give up because it's just, first of all, it's not worth it um, because they're not getting the high out of it that they wish to get. Uh, yeah. And second of all, because they're they're having to struggle so much with the compulsions and the cravings. Um, that they're having to manage it. They're saying this is more painful than it's worth. And so uh, most people who try and, and, and engage in a harm reduction approach eventually abandon and say, this is just, this is just, just, just not working for me. Well, as I gather the way that you're, you're sharing that your, your philosophy that underpins all this, it sounds like what you're really replacing the, the addictive substance or pattern of behavior with is a pattern of 
being at peace such that you've elevated your baseline, so to speak, of, of overall joy to the point where you just don't need the escape anymore. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And if you look at, if you look at people who are in recovery, people who are at peace and who are leading joyful lives, they, they they don't have the pain that drives addiction. And, 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 and they don't have the feeling of lack or the sense of emptiness or the sense of needing something more to enhance their experience of reality. And, and if you don't, if, if your life is so joyful and so good that, that there's no need to change it or, or adulterate your consciousness in any way, then, then you're going to be much less vulnerable to addicting. Man, so many questions. Because I, I don't know which direction to go. I want to talk about you know expanding consciousness and all the the emerging you know psychedelic uh, trials that are going on. But I think I want to table that and I want to talk about the philosophy behind WellMind. Your your private practice website is WellMind.com, and you have a WellMind approach, and it's it's rooted in love. Talk tell tell us about that. Sure, I, I see recovery as the practice of love. And I see the foundation of recovery as being our spirituality. Uh, and Can you define I, love I, I, for us? Define love in your as you understand it? Sure. So, yeah, I was going to say that the, the first place to start is with the definition of love, because love is one of the most used, most misused and misunderstood terms in the English language. So let me give you a definition of love, and then we can go from there. Uh, I see that love as having two parts. The first part is an attitude or experience and that, that attitude or experience then in, inspires a certain set of behaviors. The attitude and experience is one of reverence for life. It's out of reverence for life that we are then inspired and, 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 and driven, if you will, to behave in ways, that, that to act in ways to enhance life. So our reverence for life leads to behavior that enhances life. That is the definition of love. And so there's really two parts of cultivating love. And, and, and again, the first part is cultivating the experience that, you know, you, Jake, are sacred, and I am sacred, and this moment is sacred, and people are sacred, despite all of our imperfections and flaws and the ways that we disappoint and hurt each other, that this whole reality, this experience of reality, this gift of consciousness that we have, and this miracle of life, this web of life that we're all an inter- interdependent part of, this is all so incredibly sacred. And, and out of that feeling of reverence, I then am motivated out of compassion and out of gratitude and out of, out of reverence, I'm motivated to do what I can to help you and to help myself and to never harm myself and to never harm other people and to live my life for a higher purpose, which is to... You know, on two, I see. I see the purpose of life as being two things. One, to enjoy this gift of, of consciousness that we've been given, this gift of life, and uh, to savor this life. But then the second, the second part of our purpose is then to nurture life, to serve life, to contribute, to give, and that really is that really is is love in a nutshell. And if you truly love yourself, you won't do anything to hurt yourself. When you truly have reverence for yourself. You feel towards yourself the way an ideal parent would feel toward their own child, their own cherished child. And if you feel that that you love yourself and have reverence for yourself as if you were your own cherished child, you would never addict. You would figure out other love-based ways 
of resolving and managing and bearing your pain uh, rather than addicting. So, so really, I really see recovery as the practice of love, the cultivation and the practice of love, as I as I've just described it. Now you work in a in a Tascadero State Prison, and there's a lot of people who are in prison who are victims of long-standing trauma uh, patterns, um, just enduring, pervasive exposure to unspeakable ills, and I could venture a guess that many of those folks, like a lot of the people I've worked with in the past, don't grasp the idea of the way that you just defined love. They don't They don't connect. Even if they have children, they've never looked upon their children with that type of love. There, there's a, you know, the, the, the way you describe it is like a, a life is not only being and the, and the appreciation for just mere being and, and the consciousness associated with it, but also purpose. And... I'm curious how you work with folks who are struggling with such a lack of self-efficacy and understanding that you can say, hey, love is the path. And they just, you know, they give you a blank look like, you know, the, the trout faced, uh, you know, blink, blink. What do you mean? Um, how do you do that? Uh, great question. So uh, I teach a course there at the state hospital on recovery is the practice of love. And um uh, what I what I teach people is 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 again some of these experiential experiential meditative exercises on how to cultivate the experience of, of reverence, um, and then um, uh, out of that out of that experience of um, uh, of reverence, uh, we we talk about uh, some some ways to. Um, to to engage in very practical, if you will, practical, almost cognitive behavioral uh, ways of, of putting love into practice in life. So you'd be surprised by some of the things that, that I, I call love practices. Um, uh, one is is sort of unconditional acceptance of, of yourself and others and reality exactly as it is. Mm-hmm. And nice. so we talk about that. There's a there. I have a class on accountability. Um, and holding ourselves accountable and holding others accountable as, as a love practice. Um, I, I've done, done a class with them on affirmation, affirming themselves and others. Uh, assertiveness is actually a loving practice to be assertive with others in kind and firm and mutual while also protecting yourself and getting your needs met. I just finished a three-week course on authenticity as a love practice. Um, that was really, really, really well received. What, how, how do we be skillfully authentic with others? And how do we uh, modulate the degree to which we're transparent depending on, on the role that we're in and the social situation we're in? Uh, so uh, we're doing a class this week on caution, on the exercise of caution, care not to harm ourselves or others. So these are kind of the kind of, um, of I go through, I have about a 25 different love practices that um, I, uh, I'm teaching. And, and I, I provide these for my patients as well. If, if, thing, if an issue comes up in psychotherapy involving a, a deficit, if you will, um, I, I, I've coined this new term. The book I'm working on right now is basically on this concept of a love deficit disorder. I think that there are many, many people in this world who suffer from a deficit in their capacity to love and be loved. And that deficit in being able to love and be loved 
that really leads to depression, anxiety, addiction. Um, and that, that deficit is caused generally by trauma and neglect. And so if we look at our society, we're just seeing an increase in depression, addiction, anxiety. We're seeing an increase in suicide rates, which have doubled over the past uh, uh, 20 or 30 years. We're seeing a markedly increased rate in what are called attachment disorders, the ability to be related and connected and to feel that you can safely love and be loved in a relationship. That's really going up. And all these are going up in correlation with things like screen addiction and the amount of time spent on computers. So I I think we have a crisis in our society, a a crisis of love. We have a a deficit in people's capacity to love and be loved. And we really need these kinds of practices to be able to cultivate our reverence for life and then cultivate our capacity to lovingly connect and, and nurture each other. It sounds like we're starting, we as a species are starting to retreat from the the tribal nature that we had. And I don't mean tribalism, like we, we you know, carve our territory and fight each other, but, but the, the very communal uh, way that we have evolved, and there so goes an anthropological theory that suggests that the reason Homo sapiens evolved and not some of the other hominids is because of our ability to connect with each other emotionally and in community so that we could uh, tolerate things like climate change and predators and so forth. Whereas the, the, the Neanderthals who were uh, mostly individual, they, they got picked off and they didn't, they didn't evolve. They didn't survive. And now we're retreating away from that sense of community and connectivity. And I love the way that earlier you used the word interdependence, because I think we, we tend to think of things as either dependent or independent and it's very binary, but what we want is an interdependence. And what we're doing is we're we're eroding that and moving into a, almost a, a bunch of uh, capital I's walking around. Like it's just me, me, me and my own little bubble and my screen. And screen acts as a proxy for those relationships because it's it's functionally safe because we don't have to become vulnerable and risk pain. Uh, if, if the if the other people are, quote unquote, out there, then, then I don't have to invite them, quote unquote, in. So I, I'm curious how you battle this outside of just um, – the groups and the exercise and the teaching and the practicing that you do individually, uh, what message do you send broadly to somebody maybe who, who might be part of this listening audience, for example, who's like, geez, Dr. McGee, I'd love to sit in your groups. Or if you're me, Jake, interviewing you, I go, geez, Dr. McGee, I'd like to steal your curriculum. Uh, <laughs> but how do, you, how do you pitch a message that's like, here, here's something practical, take home, start loving. Um, is there, you know, yeah. shut off the screen or what is what, what might there be? Sure. Well, first of all, I, I just want to commend you on your formulation and, and the way that you talk about sort of the fragmentation of community, the fragmentation of connection, of purpose, of meaning. Hmm. You know, 2,000 years ago, um, there was very, very little addiction at that time, you know, um, and uh, in ancient Greece, for example, uh, uh, when people were born in their community, they knew their role, they knew they knew what their, their life was you know, given to them with what they were supposed to do and how they were supposed to live their life. They weren't living in sort of the me generation of, you know, do whatever you want, figure out your identity. You know, they were given an external structure and purpose and connection. And everybody lived together and they worked together and they ate together and they belonged together. Uh, and, And that's all been fragmented in part by capitalism. Uh, but but also just by sort of just the general breakdown of uh, of a sense of structure and purpose and meaning, and that leaves us all feeling empty and, and lost and 
uh, and disconnected and, 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 and we had this yearning for belonging and for, and to feel a sense of something more that is profoundly spiritual. Um, and, and that's been lost for so many people. So I want to commend you on, 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 on what you just said. It's, it's really, really a big factor that sort of weaves into the tapestry of, of the development of addiction. In terms of what I teach, let me, let me share with you sort of um, what, what I teach in terms of a process of awakening to love. I, I teach what's what I call the four A's of awakening. And those four A's start, first of all, with the practice of attending. And the second practice is one of appreciating. And the third practice is one of abstaining from harmful behavior. And the fourth practice is acting with love. So it starts with attending and appreciating, followed by abstaining and acting. Those are the four practices. And attending and appreciating are the contemplative uh, practices. They're, attending is to really pay attention to this moment, to ask yourself a thousand times a day, 10,000 times a day, what is this? And to get out of your thinking head and be very, very present. And also to, to, to develop the capacity to watch your thinking and your thoughts and your feelings and to contemplate and to re, uh, reflect on, uh, on beliefs that you have. For example, if you have the belief that society is programmed into you, that, for example, getting affirmation from others or succeeding or having power or a lot of money or you know, getting compliments or having people like you, uh, the, the, these kinds of uh, socially derived ego-driven um, gratifications are, are what's going to bring you true happiness. To attend very carefully and look at that and see, is this true? Is this really what's going to bring me joy and happiness? Um, so the process of taking, paying very, very careful attention to your experience is the way that we reflect and we learn and we see things clearly, including our attachments, because really it is our attachments uh, that causes the greatest suffering. And for example, mm-hmm. if I need you to treat me a certain way or I need you to be a certain way for me to feel happy with you, then all of a sudden I've, I've destroyed my capacity to love you because you can no longer be free to be who you are in my mind. And I can know, I, and, I, and I've lost my freedom to love you for exactly who you are as you are. Mm. So it just, attending is so important for, for, because when you see clearly, when you look carefully, you see. And when you see, that leads to a clarity that then leads to a natural dropping of some of these destructive egoic mechanisms that, that we have inside of us that cause us and others so much suffering. That sounds really so scary for most part. people to do, though. Say again. It sounds really scary for most people to do if they're if they're letting go of needing to like prejudge things and put them into a box and just let things be and just notice neutrally. Do Do you find a lot of resistance to that? Yeah, well, you know, the practice of attending is is, is it, it's an it's an actually it's an act of courage, I think, um, and it's and it takes discipline and it takes effort. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the biggest barriers uh, that people have to growth and happiness is the willingness to just make the effort and do the work of right. of right. Of because it, it does require a gentle, persistent, steady effort to pay attention. What is this? What is this? What is this? Over and over again, and to and to lead a reflective life. Uh, I meditate an hour every morning, and um, 
and that's just it's just a committed practice that I have uh, that I encourage uh, all 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 my patients to engage in some sort of practice of silence, solitude, and stillness. But it can be scary. But the thing is, once you see things clearly, the process of letting go just naturally happens. If you're holding on to a burning rod that's searing through your hands, and you notice that it's burning your burning through your skin. You're going to naturally let go. Good point. Yeah, and, you have to and, you have to be aware of it, right? Yes, exactly. Awareness leads to, to clarity, which leads to freedom. So it's it's really that practice of attending is foundational to the practice of love. The practice of awakening starts with careful attending. That's the first of the four steps. Talk about. Um... What's the next one? Appreciating. Talk about appreciating. appreciating. Yeah. So, so uh, attending naturally leads to appreciating. Uh, neurobiologically, we are programmed to just sort of to, to habituate or just to take things for granted. And the fact is, it's a miracle that you and I are conscious beings. We are the universe aware of itself. And we are talking now over a phone, broadcasting a message of meaning uh, to you know, innumerable other parts of this sacred universe that are listening. How amazing is right, this? Right, right. That we yeah, can think, is. that we can hear, that we can see, that we can taste, that we can move, that we can communicate, that we are the universe in, in conversation with itself. Extraordinary. So what happens through the process of attending is a natural awakening to a profound, grateful appreciation for the miracle of consciousness and the miracle of existence. And what happens is the the mundane becomes miraculous and the ordinary becomes extraordinary. And this moment, the boredom just goes away because this moment is incredible. Everything's fascinating Uh, through that lens. Yes. It's just, it's waking up to see the obvious right before your eyes. This is just amazing. Now, appreciating is difficult if you're under excruciating pain. If you're being tortured, it's very hard to feel appreciation. Mm -hmm. If you're in the middle of a suicidal depression, it's hard to feel appreciation. Mm -hmm. So in order to cultivate the capacity for appreciation, it's it's important to be able to to get yourself in a situation where you're not in excruciating suffering. But even then, um, through the practice uh, uh, of attending, uh, and appreciating one can at least appreciate that one is not able to appreciate right in those moments of extreme suffering right. it's the absence of that which you're you're seeking oh, I go, oh okay yeah. I, I now notice that i'm missing this very important component in me uh, at least yes. there you i would imagine it could cognitively pull you in a direction that moves you away from the the misery uh insofar as it just presents a curiosity if nothing else Right, exactly. And the other thing, Jake, is that is that you know when you when you have that careful attending, and you see the extreme suffering that you're in the midst of, what naturally arises again out of this attending appreciating dynamic is compassion. What uh, naturally yeah. arises? Oh, there is suffering. Um, you know, there is so much suffering in, in experience right now. And, and a feeling of heartfelt compassion for one's own suffering. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Feeling. 
Sorry, I just totally ran over you there. <laughs> I was thinking about no, all, the, all the cool things about you know self empathy and ability to validate oneself. And once you do that, you you know the path is clear. Um, yes, that's, that's very cool. So those are the first two contemplative practices that, that inspire a reverent attitude towards life. Uh, and then those are followed by the last two uh, love practices, which are abstaining and acting. And the, the third practice, abstaining, is one really of of abstaining from harm. And and the idea is that you know we we are so programmed to lash out or to to act reactively and impulsively to feel good and not feel bad. But sometimes. Uh, good now means bad later, and that's the definition of addiction. Good now, bad later. Hmm. Or if if I'm annoyed with you and I and I yell at you uh, um, and talk sharply to you in a way that's hurtful to you, that may feel good in terms of a relief right now for the moment, but that can have bad consequences later. Sure. Uh, so abstaining from harm is such a crucial, crucial love practice. And the way that I do that is through a practice of what I call the four P's. And the first P is to, to practice presence. And that, again, goes back to the practice of attending. So many people lash out or act addictively or impulsively um, uh, in, in ways that are harmful because they don't even know what they're doing. They're not present. They're just, they just they, 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 they speak before thinking or they act without thinking because it's just impulsive and reflexive, uh, they haven't really even noticed that they've done it. So if you're attending very carefully and practicing presence, then you can be aware when a destructive impulse arises. Um, just yesterday morning, um, something happened here at work with some patients that we had some difficulties with, and there was some less than ideal communication. And and, and when I heard uh, what happened, my immediate reaction was one of, of of, you know, distress and, and upset. But through the practice of presence, I still say, oh, look, there's distress arising. I'm feeling upset right now. And there's there's upsetness. And and, uh, and, and that's really important of the first of the four Ps. The second P is to pause, is to take a deep breath and say, right now I'm emotionally aroused. I'm feeling driven. Um uh, I, I'm pausing, I'm going to take 10 deep breaths, I'm going to wait, I'm going to sleep on this, I'm not going to respond. If you can, you can't always do that, but if you have the luxury, if you're emotionally aroused or if you're having a craving or or something like that, it's to really pause and, and, and really stop yourself. And then the third P is, is to process, and that means you know getting help. Never hurt alone. It, you know, talk it out wow. with somebody, uh, write it out, walk it out, meditate it out, sleep it out, dream it out, journal it out, whatever you need to do, you know, process your pain and your distress until you get to a place of clarity. And that's the, the, the fourth page is to proceed. So it, it's presence, pause, process, and proceed. Those four Ps make up the practice of abstaining. And when you proceed, you proceed with clarity that now you know what love would do. And sometimes maybe proceeding would be to do nothing. Or maybe yeah. proceeding would be to say something to somebody. Or maybe it would be to go, you know, uh, go for a run. Um, whatever proceeding is, but but wait until you have that clarity that you know what would love do in the situation. So like that's the, the third practice of abstaining. I was going to say, that sounds like the parenthetical on proceed is proceed 
toward health away from harm. Yes, yes, yes. Proceed in a direction. What do the next loving thing? What's the next right? Oh, I like thing that. I like that. Do the next loving thing. That's cool. And and then acting. Yeah. Acting sounds like it it uh, blends seamlessly from proceed. Yeah, and, and acting again comes down to to, to what I've. Um, developed which which are sort of these these love practices and i if you want jake i can just sort of read these uh, slowly and to give give our audience a chance to sort of digest each one Mm -hmm. so the first one would be acceptance and these are in alphabetical order then accountability then affirmation then assertiveness then the practice of authenticity acting with caution uh, charity or generosity Compassion, contentment, cooperation, courage, devotion, discipline, empathy, endurance, forgiveness, gratitude, helpfulness, hope, humility, kindness, nurturing, patience, trustworthiness and wisdom that's great that should be a meme i don't know what it would be but those should be on a meme somewhere and then uh, maybe we'll just point to this podcast to explain them yeah i'm about halfway done finishing this book on on the love practices so um i'm hoping to have that out published by next year but It'll be on the forays of awakening to love, and, and it'll be divided into these these four basic practices. Um, so, um, if anybody's interested in more information, they can contact me at at drmichaelmcgee.com if, if they're interested. I have one more because we're coming up on almost an hour of recording now, and I really appreciate your time. It's been um, really special for me to. I did. Just to conduct this interview, I, I didn't know what to expect because um, somehow or another we connected through Noggin Notes and I looked up your websites, uh, multiple, and uh, I was like, this guy's really impressive. I want to talk to him. And I didn't know what to expect because you and I had only chatted the one time about scheduling this and I, I'm just, I'm blown away. I, I want to, what I want to do is I want to drive down to <laughs> to to, uh, to the Central Coast and uh, maybe tour some wineries and uh, maybe hit up Firestone Walker <laughs> Brewery along the way and then uh, sit down with you and have like a nice long dinner and uh, just pick your brain. But anyway. Anytime. Um, Anytime. Yeah. To me. I, think, I think my wife would be, would be up for that. So, um, okay. We'll plan that. For sure. Um, but my, my last thing for you, and it just popped into my head as you were, um, you were, you were listing off the, 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 um, uh, what are they? The the, the love foundation. The love, the love practices. Love practices. Yeah. Um, I wanted to know who inspires you. Who do you read? Who do you follow? Oh my gosh! Great question. So many people. I, I'm I'm reading right now somebody who um, who is just truly deeply moving me. Um, and his name is Anthony DeMello. Um, and he, I think he's a, a Jesuit priest. Um, um, I'm, I'm not myself a Christian. I'm, I'm, I'm more of an eclectic agnostic theist with Buddhist leanings, mm-hmm. uh, but Anthony DeMello's writing, I'm reading a book of his right now called the way to love. I'm actually rereading it. It's a small little book and, uh, very profound. 
profoundly insightful. And he's kind of a, a Christian uh, person with a strong Buddhist reality and experience. Uh, and I believe that ultimately all the religions point to one one sacred truth. Um, but he's yeah. a, he's a highly realized person. Other people who have influenced me include Eckhart Tolle. Um, I've also been influenced by M. Scott Peck, a fellow psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Uh, book, The Road Less Traveled, had a big influence on me 20, 30 years ago when I first read that. Um, those, those are, um, those are some of the influences. Uh, there's so many. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh yeah. uh, is uh, a Buddhist writer who has um, has really influenced me as well. There's a colleague of mine, no, I'll just put a shout out to, who I really love. His name is Dr. Million, William Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R, and he is the father of motivational interviewing. Oh, yeah. And he's written the, the textbook on the treatment of addiction. Um, brilliant, wonderful man. And his book, uh, Loving Kindness, um, really, um, really was inspiring for me. Uh, and sort of is what triggered me to in the direction of developing the book that I'm writing right now on, on the practice of love. That's awesome. That's a good list. I really wanted to talk to you about the prisons, but that can wait for another time. Um, okay, we can do another do another podcast. We may have to. I, one of my uh, very good friends, mentor, uh, colleague, uh, lives in Pennsylvania, and he's doing some wonderful stuff in the Pennsylvania prison system, which is why I'm so intrigued by it. I think I think the three of us probably need to carve out some time and just do a do a wrap on that because um, I I would just ask the questions and you guys could talk. But uh, his name for the listening audience for you is uh, Christian Conte C O N T E. Um, he's he's lighting the world on fire in Pennsylvania. So anyway, um, I cannot thank you enough for this. This has been absolutely delightful, very illuminating, and. Um, I just, just just recharged my batteries, so I appreciate that. So thank you very much, Dr. McGee. Uh, again, uh, it's uh, drmcgee.com, dr. Dr. isn't it? Is it full name? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. dr and then michael and then mcgee, mcge.com. Yeah. Or people can also go to thejoyofrecovery.com if they want. Okay. Um, and that will go to my website as well. Yeah, um, I'm a terrible host for not knowing that off the top of my head, and I didn't have it written down. So oh, no, you're a wonderful just host. Try to wing you, it. You really did a great job with, with your interviewing skills and the way you conduct this. It's, you really have a gift. Thanks, man. Uh, I'll take that compliment and run with it. So, um, again, thanks. And on behalf of the the Zephyr Wellness family and the Noggin Notes team, I wish you all great mental wellness. We'll catch you next time. Bye bye.